One of the most powerful fears in the world is the fear of rejection. When I was my kid's age, the school I attended uh, expected us to sell candy bars uh, for, to raise money for projects at the school. I remember as a child enduring the awkwardness of going door to door or standing in front of the grocery store for hours on end and sheepishly asking total strangers, would you like to buy a candy bar? You know, the surge of relief that went through me when someone had pity on my soul and said, yes, I would. Thank you. As we get older, the, the fear of rejection doesn't go away, does it? It's not only a thing for kids. The context just gets less juvenile. The fear of rejection haunts us all. We fear rejection by our colleagues and bosses and spouses and friends in social situ situations. We fear rejection in evangelism. And so instead we remain silent when we should be bold with the gospel. We just want so badly to be accepted, to be liked, to be part of the inner circle, as it were, not on the outside looking in. Friends, I think part of maturing as a Christian is, is growing to embrace the fact that, that faithfulness within the kingdom of God often entails rejection within the kingdom of man. As Bo prayed this morning, our brothers and sisters in locations around the world more hostile to the gospel have no problem discerning this fact. They know that to be a Christian is to, is to release one's death grip on social acceptance. But here in the United States, where by God's grace, Christianity has been allowed to flourish unhindered with freedom, it's, it's been more culturally easy to, to combine the desire to be popular and the desire to be faithful, as, as if those two things are one and the same. Perhaps one of the graces of our culture's growing hostility to biblical Christianity is the divorce of those two, th those two things. To be faithful to God likely entails rejection by man. And of course, friends, this, this conflict of the two kingdoms was never starker than when Jesus Christ walked the earth. Despite his, his teaching and his, his miracles that validated his divine and messianic identity, Jesus faced constant widespread opposition. Instead of bowing their knee to the King of Kings and, and loving worship, the majority of the Jews, even those in his hometown, as we'll see this morning, turned their backs on him in sinful rejection. But praise God, in his sovereignty and grace, he used even the most painful rejection that Jesus experienced to turn out for our salvation. It was all part of the sorrows that Christ endured for us that culminated in the cross. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is page 819 of the Bible made available to you under the seat in front of you. In the last two weeks, we learned from Jesus' parables of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, some of the theological mechanics that undergird people's rejection of Christ. Why? Why did they reject Christ? the Lord Jesus. Well, one of the lessons the parables taught us was that the kingdom of God came in a surprising way. God's redemptive reign did not come in Jesus's first advent in apocalyptic power, but instead 
came in a way that seemed small and hidden and insignificant. In fact, the, the fact that the kingdom of God was, was framed by, by two comings of the Messiah instead of one was indeed a surprise to many. They expected it all to happen at once. Messiah comes, boom, right? New exodus, new covenant, new creation, judgment of God's enemies, global reign, end of the age, all in, in one package. They didn't anticipate the already but not yet nature of God's kingdom reign through Christ. Friends, what the Jews didn't realize is that, is that judgment of God's enemies by the Messiah, if he would have come to judge, it would have included them, right? If that's what he came to do the first time around. Instead, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. God's purpose was to rescue and reconcile sinners, not to judge them. But ironically, Ironically, that purpose of mercy would be realized in Christ, not through widespread acceptance of Him as King, but through His rejection. Let's read together. Matthew 13, we're going to start in verse 53. Our text this morning goes all the way to chapter 14, verse 12. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of this text, Matthew thirteen fifty-three to fourteen twelve, is this. I trust it'll be the main idea of the sermon this morning. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of faithfulness. And yet he faced unrelenting rejection. We as his followers should expect no different. Jesus Christ, our King, is the ultimate example of faithfulness within the kingdom of God. And yet, even he, the King of the kingdom, endured unrelenting rejection. Friends, we as his followers live in the pattern of our King. We should expect no different. Two points this morning. 
tailor these two sections of the text. First of all, from chapter 13, rejection by the familiar. And then in chapter 14, rejection by the powerful. Rejection by the familiar and the powerful. Friends, in these two episodes, Matthew ties together Jesus' persecution by the familiar and powerful alike, both those in low places and those in high places, to show us the shocking breadth of opposition to him. The technical term for this literary idea is a merism. Maybe you're not a grammar expert. That's fine. Neither am I. It's called a merism. It's contrasting parts that refer to the whole. Like I searched high and low for my lost iPhone, which I do quite frequently, right? It doesn't mean I searched high and low. It just means I searched everywhere, right? Par- contrasting parts for the whole. In a similar way, by portraying uh, both the, the poor yet familiar Nazarenes rejecting Jesus, as well as powerful yet unfamiliar Herod the Tetrarch, Matthew is making the point that Jesus his rejection was from the least to the greatest, from his so-called friends to his foes across the board. Brothers and sisters, I pray this morning we might learn from the pattern of Jesus's life and realize that our own faithfulness to Christ will no doubt include the same pattern, but the kingdom of God is worth it. Number one, rejection by the familiar. According to 1353 and 54, Jesus leaves Capernaum, the kind of the home base for his Galilean ministry, and he returns home. He, he heads back to Nazareth. Now, friends, when you read this, you ought not to have in your mind that Jesus is returning to some metropolitan suburb, like he left Phoenix and then he went back to Goodyear, right? No, rather you ought to have in your mind the tiniest of rural towns where everybody knows everybody. Anybody come from a town like that? Okay, scholars estimate that Nazareth's population was likely around two to three hundred people, like barely more than are in this room this morning. So insignificant is Nazareth that you'll not find it mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. You'll not find it featured in the Apocrypha or in any of the rabbinic literature. Perhaps you remember Jesus's disciple Nathaniel's response to Philip in John 1 when Philip told him he had found the Messiah and it's Jesus from Nazareth. And and Nathaniel responded, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, are you kidding me, man? It defied the imagination that someone so exalted as the Messiah would hail from somewhere so unimportant as Nazareth. I mentioned these things to highlight the fact that when Jesus returned to Nazareth, he returned to a setting where everyone knew who he was. The synagogue Jesus taught in on that day is where he would have worshipped with his family as a boy and as a young man. He knew and loved these people just as they knew and loved him. Of all the places you'd think that Jesus would be received well, surely it's Nazareth. Surely they would welcome Jesus back as the hometown hero. Surely, surely they, would, they would recognize him for who he is. Maybe, maybe Nazareth would become like the, the beachhead for revival in Galilee. If only. Verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, at first glance, the Nazarene's astonishment and their question is totally justifiable. After all, they didn't know Jesus as the mighty healer and the wise teacher, but as the carpenter's son. They knew him as, as Mary and Joseph's oldest child, little, little Joshua, right? Little Jesus. 
Perhaps women in the synagogue that day had changed Jesus' diaper when he was an infant. They had watched him grow up. They had used his, his dad's services to repair their wagon or, you know, build the addition to their home. They watched Jesus grow into his place in the family carpentry business until he abruptly left for Capernaum a year or two earlier. And they had apparently heard the rumors of the mighty works that he was performing. Word had reached them about his, his exploits, how he healed the leprous and the blind and the lame and even raised the dead to life again with his mere word. All their info was secondhand at this point, but now they had gathered to see and hear Jesus firsthand in the synagogue. Perhaps Jesus' childhood teachers were in the room on that day. Buddies from his youth, friends of the family. For them to ask the question, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works, honestly seems pretty normal upon first reading. It, it seems familiar to his disciples' question in the boat on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus calmed the storm with his word. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? But friends, what appears at first to be a question based on curiosity or confusion soon reveals itself to be something much more sinister. They continue in verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. In other words, the Nazarene's initial question made it seem as if they genuinely wanted to know how it was someone from their little village could do such wonderful things. But their follow-up questions revealed that they had already come to answer that question. They had already made a judgment about Jesus. Given his roots from their little town, he simply could not be the Messiah King that he said he was. One commentary I read suggests that the Nazarene's question, where did this man get all these things, implies the same conclusion as the Pharisees in chapter 12, that, that Jesus did his mighty works through the power of Satan. Maybe. But I don't think that's it. I think the Nazarene's unbelief is, is far more mundane than that. Their questions and Jesus' response about the rejection of him as a prophet really tell us the story, don't they? The reason for their unbelief, friends, is their familiarity with Jesus. They simply could not conceive of him of anything being anything more significant than an ordinary Nazarene. Their questions confirm this fact. Is not this the carpenter's son? Now, it's likely by this time Joseph had passed away. He's not mentioned by name anywhere in Matthew except in the, the infancy narrative. But people knew who he was and what he did. Again, small town. Everyone knows everyone. They knew that in Jesus' adolescence, he, did not attend the, he didn't attend the fancy rabbinic school in Jerusalem. He was an apprentice in his dad's woodworking shop. He was working with his dad to learn the tricks of the trade in wood and stoneworking. His, his mother Mary, she likely still lived in Nazareth along with his brothers and sisters. Why is Jesus any different from them? By the way, quick aside, theological aside, Roman Catholic doctrine teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary as one of the reasons she should be venerated. But an honest reading of the Gospels doesn't lead us to that conclusion, does it? Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. 
and were given no reason to believe that they came into this world any other way than the same means of conception that all other human beings do. These are not Jesus' cousins. These are not the children of Joseph by another marriage. The straight, plain reading of the text is that these are the sons and daughters of Joseph and Mary. Okay? A side over. I think it's likely that Jesus' own family was in the synagogue that day. His statement leads us in that direction, doesn't it? A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. I'm sure it didn't help the fact that Jesus' siblings had not yet recognized him for who he was. Praise God that two of them did, at least two of them did after his resurrection. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his brother James, and James believed and became one of the pillars of the, of the early church. His letter, the book of James in our New Testament, is proof of James' faith in Christ, as are the writings of Jesus' other brother, Judas, whom we know better as Jude, the author of the next-to-last book in the New Testament. All that to say, friends, I think the response of the Nazarenes shows us that that closeness to Jesus, closeness to Jesus is not the same thing as saving faith. After all, they saw him and they listened to him firsthand. They were filled with wide-eyed astonishment, yet not saving faith in him. They saw Jesus up close. They had seen him up close for his entire life. But it's like the proximity of their, of their position. They're close Proximity to Jesus had made them blind to him. You've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. In this case, damningly so. The Nazarenes were offended that Jesus thought himself to be anything else than what they thought he was for all those years. Familiarity with him did not elicit faith, but led to rejection. When they, when they looked at Jesus, all they could see were, was themselves in their blind idolatry. They did not see their Lord and their God. In the synagogue that day, the Nazarenes embodied Isaiah's words that Jesus quoted in Matthew 13. Seeing, they did not see. And hearing, they did not hear. Friends, I think there's an implicit warning for us in this story, right? Don't equivocate familiarity with Jesus with saving faith. You can be super familiar with Jesus and yet far away from God at the same time. You can, you can know all the things about Jesus and yet not know him in a saving way. Friends, coming to church regularly, singing all the songs by memory, being able to articulate the truths of the gospel, it's not the same thing as saving faith. You can do all those things and yet none of it matters if your heart is not resting on Christ alone to save you from your sins. If your heart doesn't treasure the kingdom of God, as we talked about last week in the parables, your familiarity with church life amounts to a hill of beans. It is a house of cards. It's like Jesus' words about the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Artificial attachment to Jesus will fatally collapse eventually, either in this life or the life to come. What will matter then on the last day at the judgment is not whether you're familiar with Christianity but whether you've submitted your life to God through Christ. Friends, let the Nazarene's response chasten you and, and warn you away from this type of nominal Christianity. Feel-good church attendance has nothing to do with saving faith in Christ. 
Teens, this is a word for you. If you've grown up here in the church, along with your parents, right? Coming along with your family, church feels normal, right? Jesus feels super familiar. But teenagers, do not equivocate that feeling with biblical faith in Christ. You must, you must own your faith. You must trust and follow Christ with all that you have. Well, friends, don't let familiarity with Jesus blind you from who he is. Don't let the fact that Jesus was a human, the same as you, cause you to think that he could not possibly be utterly different from you in the glories of his person and his work and therefore worthy of your worship. Ask God to give you eyes to see him, to truly see him, a heart to truly believe in and worship him as your Lord and as your God. Notice one more time Jesus' response to the Nazarene's skeptical unbelief in verse 57. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus responds in the form of a, of a maxim or, or a proverb, doesn't he? He's saying, this is how it is. It's common for a prophet to be honored everywhere else except in his hometown or in his own household. Of course, Jesus is drawing upon the experiences of the prophets in the Old Testament, right? Whether it's Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah, who all experienced mistreatment by those who should have treated them best. Faithfulness to God as a prophet meant declaring God's message no matter the cost. Remember, God sent Isaiah to preach a message that people would reject. Jeremiah 12.6 records Jeremiah's mistreatment by his own family. And then, of course, later in his ministry, the king of Israel threw him in prison in the mud for telling people the truth. Elijah spent much of his ministry on the run from Ahab and Jezebel. Jesus is similarly telling the Nazarenes, just because you refused to listen to my message does not make my message untrue. I simply follow in the line of the prophets who preceded me. Jesus' response is, his word echoes the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, of course, we know. We know that Jesus was not an ordinary run-of-the-mill prophet. He was the prophet to which all other prophets pointed. He was the preeminent prophet that Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said, to him you shall listen. Jesus didn't just speak on behalf of God. Jesus was the very revelation and the word of God. He represented heaven as the divine son. Jesus' words overflowed with wisdom because he himself is the very fountainhead of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Son of God, son of man. Oh, friends, what, what riches of wisdom and knowledge and ultimately salvation the Nazarenes spurned in their unbelieving familiarity with Jesus. Verse 58 is such a sad indictment. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. This statement doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow dependent upon people's faith to produce acts of power, as if people, you know, having faith was like rubbing the genie's lamp. Have enough faith, you'll get the healer to do things, right? No, that type of prosperity heresy is more devilish than Christ-like. It's not Christian. But remember that, that Jesus' miracles were the signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Remember, we talked about this. 
They were like neon billboards advertising the fact that the age to come, the great age of salvation, had broken into this age of sin and death. God's saving reign had arrived to which every man should respond in repentance and faith. If people responded to Jesus in unbelief, they were rejecting the very reign of God that could save them. And therefore, Jesus would not give more of himself to them than he had already given. As Jesus said in chapter 13, verse 12, to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Before we move on to chapter 14, friends, let me just make two observations about this episode in Nazareth. Two implications for us to think about. Number one, Jesus is, excuse me, let me start over. (laughs) Jesus' rejection by his own family and townspeople is a particularly painful aspect of his saving mission. Jesus' rejection by his own family and townspeople is a particularly painful aspect of his mission to save. Jesus was not a messianic robot. He was fully human in every way. He felt emotionally the sting of his friend's rejection. And yet he fully submitted himself to the Father's will. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus came to bear our sin and shame by himself being shamed in the process. Listen to Isaiah's prophecy about the messianic servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. And just think of the Nazarene's response as I read this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The Apostle John wrote in chapter 1 of his gospel that Jesus came into his own, but his own did not receive him. And surely this rejection by those whom Jesus knew best was a particular part of his sorrows in his saving mission. A particular part of Jesus' bearing our shame. And I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean, His shame for mine, my sin on him, his righteous life, mine. Number two, second implication. Because Jesus endured this type of acute shame from those close to him, friends, he is well suited to be a compassionate savior and tender help to those of his people who experience the same type of suffering. Because Jesus experienced this type of acute shame from those close to him, he's well-suited to be a compassionate and tender help to those who experience this same type of persecution and suffering. I wonder how many here have, have felt the sting of such rejection from family and friends. Perhaps for you, friend, when your home folk found out that you had become a Christian, they started viewing you as some sort of social contagion, some sort of pariah. Beloved, if you have experienced such loss, well, friend, take heart. So is Jesus. The servant is not greater than his master. 
Jesus is not asking you to walk a road that he himself hasn't walked a hundred times over because he experienced the acute degradation of those who knew him best because he did so sinlessly. And since he was vindicated for his life of suffering with resurrected glory, he is well qualified to help you as your great high priest. He is more than capable of giving you hope that if you endure until the end in faith, you too will share his resurrection hope, his resurrection life and glory forever. So friend, don't despair. Don't shrink back. Jesus has walked your road. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He endured. He endured it all for the joy that is set before him. And so can you. Number two, rejection by the powerful. Let's look at chapter 14. Remember that Matthew wants to see, wants us to see that all levels of the social strata rejected Jesus. It extended from the peasant's house, right? To the king's palace. Look at 14.1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch being a term that just means he ruled over a fourth of the region, right? Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Matthew writes as if his readers originally would have known who Herod the Tetrarch was, and indeed they would have. This is, this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, the client ruler over Judea who ordered the killing of the, of the infant boys in Bethlehem. This is his son. Upon Herod the Great's death in 4 B.C., the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus divided control of Palestine between Herod's sons. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee in the area east of the Jordan River until from 4 BC until his death in AD 39, so some 43 years. He was the ruler of Galilee during the entirety of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries. Even in this one verse, verse 1, we start to get a sense that Herod Antipas was just as rotten as his father, like the apple did not fall, fall far from the tree. The fame of, of Jesus' miracles had reached all the way to the palace, but as it turns out, Herod's guilty conscience mixed with his fear form a cocktail of unbelief. As the rest of the account reveals, John the Baptist had denounced Herod's infidelity. Herod had imprisoned him and eventually had him executed. <laughs> so when Herod, the, the, the Tetrarch of Galilee, hears of the exploits of Jesus, he thinks, oh no, this is the resurrected John. Come back to haunt me. Come back to get revenge. He knew John was a mighty prophet, and if John had come back from the dead, then surely he would use his resurrection superpowers to get even, right? Friends, you can't make this stuff up, right? This, this is remarkable. Instead of seriously inquiring about who this Jesus of Nazareth was, Herod responds in a way that can only be described as some syncretistic paranoia, right? Resurrection plus in reincarnation plus guilt plus fear equals silliness, right? It, it equals really bad theology and unbelief in Christ, Matthew had already told us in chapter 4, verse 12, that John the Baptist was in prison, but he, he didn't give us any more info that, than that at, at that time. 
In fact, chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that the timing of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was corresponding to, the, to John's imprisonment. Upon hearing that John was arrested, Matthew writes that Jesus withdrew to Galilee and he started his ministry there. When John was in prison, it was like he handed off the prophetic baton to Jesus and Jesus took it from there. John had, had, had said, he must increase, right? And I must decrease. And apparently, the Lord providentially arranged for that, happen, for that to happen for real, right? Through John's imprisonment by Herod Antipas. He granted John's desire through his imprisonment. But in chapter 4, again, Matthew didn't tell us why John was incarcerated. So these next few verses here in Matthew 14, they're like a flashback. They're like an historical flashback to help us connect the dots to explain Herod's bizarre reaction to the fame of Jesus. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of those verses again. But verse 3 starts to frame the situation, right? The, the reason that, that Herod had thrown John in prison was because of the fury of his illegitimate wife, Herodias, whose marriage to Herod, John had publicly denounced repeatedly. Friends, the Jewish historian Josephus, his details of, of this history correspond to the Bibles perfectly. Okay? The Bible's account here is reliable. Josephus tells us that Herod was formerly married to the daughter of an Arabian king, but during a visit to Rome to, to see his brother Philip, he struck up an illicit affair with Philip's wife, Herodias, who, by the way, not only was Herod's sister-in-law, was the daughter of another one of Herod's brothers, Aristobulus. So Herodias wasn't just his sister-in-law, but his niece. What a sordid deal, right? So Herod divorces his wife. Herodias divorces Philip, and the two marry. This whole thing was like a huge scandal in Palestine. According to Josephus, that Arabian king I mentioned before, he, he tried to start a war, naturally, with Herod out of revenge for his treachery until Rome intervened to protect Herod. But for John the Baptist, the greatest scandal was not the political mess. The greatest scandal was moral. Herod had clearly broken God's law. Not only the Decalogue's instruction regarding adultery, but also Leviticus 20.21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. What we see in John the Baptist, friends, is, is a portrait of prophetic courage. John's message of repentance in light of the kingdom of God's coming, it did not slant toward those who posed no threat to him. No, John preached the kingdom to the poor and to the powerful, to those in low places and high places. Friends, John was willing to speak truth to power, even though the power, in this case, had full ability to mete out consequences for such boldness, and indeed, that power did. Friends, just a quick word for our evangelical moment here in the United States. John had no desire to leverage political power for the so-called good of the kingdom of God if it meant compromising faithfulness in the process. Instead, he cared enough for Herod's soul to warn him from the impending judgment of God if Herod did not repent. There are so many implications, aren't there, for our relationship with politics as Christians. There's so much to be learned here from John the Baptist. It's easy to be bold when the stakes are low. 
But when the stakes are high and there's real risk involved, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? John cared more about faithfulness to God than his own reputation or safety. John stands with the multitude of the saints down through the ages who didn't keep their lives for themselves, but instead gave it willingly because of the surpassing worth of the treasure of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if your convictions about God's word and God's kingdom are so deeply rooted in your soul that if you were faced with a choice of faithfulness that has a risk of loss attached to it, that there'd just be no question that you'd choose the path of faithfulness. In your business dealings, in your family's expectations, in relation to government powers who might in a future day actively oppose God's people, what will you do? What will we as a church do? Will we choose the, the easy way out? The easy path? Or the righteous one? It all hinges on what we learned last week in the parables of the hidden treasure and the, and the pearl of great price. Have you rightly appraised the value of the kingdom of God? Is submitting to God through Christ like a treasure that you're willing to give up everything to have? Friends, if not, if not, if it's not, your moral compass will not point true north in the moment of crisis. You'll choose the easy, comfortable, non-resistant path. But if to you Christ is the pearl of great price, then participating in the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection will be like steel rods in your spine that cause you to stand strong when the fires of persecution comes. Herod? Well, he was just the opposite. One commentator calls Herod Antipas the photo-negative of John the Baptist. Indeed. Whereas John was courageous no matter what it cost him, every move Herod makes in this account is weak and fearful. He threw John in prison to please his wife. Verse 5 says he had, he had thought about putting John to death, but he didn't because he knew John's popularity and feared what the people would think. And of course, there's the whole incident that led to John's execution. Herod threw himself a birthday party. You can imagine the scene, right? The, the wine is flowing. The music is bumping, and during this drunken debauchery, the, the daughter of Herodias from her first marriage came into the banquet hall and danced, no doubt sensually, before Herod and his guests. And in what can be only described as disgusting lechery, Herod was pleased by the dancing of this teenage girl. In his inebriated revelry, Herod invited the girl to make any request of them, and he, he swore to honor the request with an oath. It was like a, a blank check, and he'll sign it. The girl, influenced by her mother, Herodias, asked for John the Baptist's head on one of the banquet platters. Look at verse 9. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Do you think Herod would have honored the girl's request if the guests had not been there? No. But he had made this oath in front of his guests, and now he had a dilemma. If he honored her request, he would commit an unjust atrocity. But if he didn't, he'd lose face with his guests and face the ire of his wife. Friends, here's the thing people consumed with themselves always choose the easy way out. 
Selfish people are by nature cowardly people because they're only motivated by self-interest, not the good of others. They'd never think of sacrificing themselves for the love of neighbor or the common good. Friends, sadly, the halls of government are filled with such people, more consumed about garnering a vote or performing well in the polls than standing on principle or truth. Friends, selfish leaders are weak leaders, and weak leaders are dangerous leaders. May God give us not the leaders we deserve, but the leaders that we need. We need to pray to that end for both our current and future leaders. Not surprisingly, Herod chose the path of least resistance. Like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought weak by others. He chose not to lose face. And so John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, lost his head. John's earthly reward for his faithfulness to God was the loss of his life. Matthew states these details matter-of-factly to spare us the grisly details, right? He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. In the scales of the world's evaluation, John the Baptist's life was a colossal waste. He died with nothing and with no one by his side. But brothers and sisters, because we know the rest of the story, we know the opposite is true. John's ignominious exit from this world was his entrance into eternal glory. Listen to Charles Spurgeon's reflection about John's execution. It was a foul murder, but to the Baptist, it was a happy release. He was not left to pine in solitude. His work was done. Thus, the man of God left his prison for paradise by one sudden stroke of the sword. He was no longer in the power of Herod or Herodias. He may have lost his head on earth, but he gained a crown in heaven. Beloved, we can have full confidence this morning that John's death was not evidence of the kingdom's defeat, but merely a prelude to its victory. We know that John's death, like all the suffering of God's people on behalf of Christ's name, becomes the very platform for the gospel to shine brightly in the darkness of this age. How often it has been the case, both in the book of Acts and throughout redemptive history, or throughout church history, that is, that the persecution and even the martyrdom of God's people became in God's providence the rocket fuel on which the gospel of grace burns as it advances across the world and upon the consciences of sinners who repent and believe. As Christians esteem the worth of Christ of such value that they, that they stake their lives on it and they give their lives for it, their testimony adorns the gospel with credibility so that it shines beautifully and is embraced by many. As it's been said, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. It waters the ground and makes it grow. Well, friends, so often the gospel moves forward. It moves forward. It advances on the backs of the persecuted. I wonder if you have this type of perspective this morning. Do you look at John's beheading and think, what a missed opportunity, man. You could have done so much more with your life. Or do you think, what a privilege. What an honor 
to suffer on behalf of the kingdom and give his life on behalf of Christ. Friends, what joy was John's in an instant as his headless body crumpled to the ground because his soul was immediately in the presence of the Lord where it waits to be reunited with his resurrected body on the last day. I doubt you're in danger of losing your head this week. At least I hope. I doubt you're in danger of losing your head for faithfulness to God. But what are you willing to lose if faithfulness demands it? Is there anything that you're holding back? Is there a self-love or self-interest that the enemy could exploit in a crisis to paralyze your ability to faithfully obey Christ? Or will love for God compel your unswerving faithfulness? Friends, I think Matthew, in this account of John's execution, not only gives us a flashback, but also a preview. It's not just a flashback. It's a preview of something to come. In John's death, the shadows of Golgotha begin to loom over Jesus, the shadows of the cross. If John the Baptist could be killed for his faithfulness, well, then surely Jesus could too. And look at the parallels. Look and think about the parallels. Like John, Jesus would be taken into custody, not because of any crime, but on account of his, his righteousness. Like John, Jesus would also appear before Herod Antipas before his death. Like Herod with John, Pontius Pilate would make an unjust decision about Jesus because of fear of the people's reaction. Like John, Jesus' body would be treated with dignity and buried according to the Jewish law. But there's one important difference, isn't there? Unlike John, Jesus did not stay buried. It wasn't John who resurrected as Herod feared, but Jesus the King. My friends, remind yourself of this truth daily. The divine pattern for God's people in this age is not glory now and then yet more glory later. It is suffering now and then glory later. It's the cross now and then the crown in the age to come. Friends, don't run from the possibility of rejection because you've failed to see God's blueprint for His kingdom. It's the blueprint for the Christian life. Our experience is tailored to our Lord's and it should steal us for the day of trouble. Let the story of John the Baptist fire in you a resolve for when that moment arises. The only reason we even know about Herod the Tetrarch, the powerful of Galilee, the only reason we know about him is his connection to John and Jesus. You would know nothing about Herod if he weren't part of the gospel accounts. In the eyes of the world, Herod had all the power and notoriety. But friends, the Herodian dynasty has been dead for two millennia. And still today in 2022, the name of King Jesus reverberates across the planet, an echo that will have no end. John the Baptist will reign with his king in the age to come. And so will you, brother and sister, if you endure, if you endure in faith. Non-Christian friend, I, I imagine this, this whole discussion may seem a little weird to you. <laughs> All this talk of martyrdom and suffering and Sacrifice. Friend, the reason that Christians are willing to suffer such things is because we believe that this world, this, this life, this temporary life is not 
ultimate. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead proves it so. Something matters so much more than anything this world offers, and that's the kingdom of God, His reign both now and forever through Christ. Friends, it's not merely that that Jesus was rejected by His own people, both familiar and powerful. That He just kind of sets us a good example of how to be noble during suffering. Just follow His example and do good. No, friend. For Jesus to become our example, we must first count Him as our Redeemer. Esteem Him as our King and Savior. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just the Jews rejecting Him, but God fulfilling His plan to put forth His Son as a sin-bearing sacrifice for all who would believe. He took our rebellion against God and our guilt and our shame on Himself. Jesus on the cross paid the divine price for our transgressions. His resurrection for the dead is simply God's divine receipt on that transaction. He accepted Christ's sacrifice for us. And He has exalted the Lord Jesus as worthy of our highest allegiance and trust and worship as the resurrected King. Today, friends, God wants you to turn your eyes away from yourself. He wants to pry your your fingers away from your self-sufficiency and your self-reliance and your self-gratification and your self-righteousness. Those things lead to destruction. He wants you to turn your eyes away from yourself to Him through His Son who absorbed God's justice on behalf of all who would trust in Him. Friend, if you're here without Christ this morning, if if you're not a Christian, you can have eternal life free of charge. Jesus purchased it for all who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. You can have it free of charge. But it will cost you everything. You must be willing to forsake everything. However, the glorious news of the gospel is what you gain far outweighs your loss. You gain the hope of eternal joy and a reconciled relationship with your Creator that infuses even this life with satisfaction and peace and joy. What you gain is Christ, the rejected, now reigning King. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would impress these truths deep into our hearts this morning. We ask that your rejection and your glory to follow would serve for us as this divine pattern to encourage us and to steal us from the day of our suffering. Oh, Lord, deepen these truths in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.